moustache stepped through them, fluid and measured. He was not particularly quick. He was simply exactly where he wanted to be. By the time they had compensated for one movement, he had made another. Contrary to popular wisdom, it was almost exactly not like a dance. A dancer works with rhythm and display. The body moves as a series of separate parts, finding beauty in harmony. A dancer wants to express something rather than conceal it. Mustache did none of these things. He did not move his body extraneously or any part of it in isolation, and he was not showy. He killed without suddenness or excess force. He stabbed you just enough to make you die, not enough to get his hook caught up on your ribs or your spine. He killed ergonomically, so that later, when he was reporting to his evil mustache boss, he would not have an uncomfortable twinge in his shoulders, would not have to go to the evil mustache doctor and ask for some time off to get rid of his RSI. And occasionally, when he wasn't quite perfect, his chain and hook weapon went plink. It was the only energy he wasted. In my ear, Jim Hepzibah was broadcasting while he worked. Hostile, say again, hostile. We are under attack. But the interference from the fire was bad, and only broken phrases came back. The others were either setting their explosives or fighting for their lives. Maybe both. It mattered, but it wasn't relevant. We had our own job to do. Mustache removed the hook from some kid whose name I never had time to ask, and stepped toward us. Gonzo went to meet him. Things happened. I had never seen Gonzo fight at full stretch. I had never realized how scary my best friend was. Gonzo stepped towards Mustache, moving in a straight line, hard forms, closest distance between two points. Close with the target and strike and keep doing it, and scooping up a short steel bar along the way. Encumbered by the suit, Gonzo was not as graceful as Mustache. He moved like an ice shelf. Mustache stopped. He didn't like what he was seeing, and then he slid forward into a new stance, and the hook started to move around his body on its chain. Whoa, whoa, whoop, and again. Gonzo was at full speed when he hit Mustache's blurring shield. His steel bar caught the hook perfectly, and he wrenched back on it hard and unsubtle, which was not what Mustache was expecting. Mustache had a choice: follow the wrench and risk grappling, or release the weapon and take the opportunity to strike. He must not have fancied grappling with a big man in a flabby suit. Because he chose the second option, the hook spun away, and Mustache launched a hand high, twisted, slammed Gonzo with a foot like a rivet gun, kachunk, then stepped back along a different line so that Gonzo's blinding repost with the bar blurred through empty air. So, one up to Gonzo, but not for nothing. Mustache came back in. Which proved to be a mistake because Gonzo was waiting for it. The bar slammed into his chest, and something broke. Mustache rolled out, taking Gonzo's leg on the way. 
a single shot to the muscle of the calf, which must have deadened it, because Gonzo staggered and had to hop to regain his balance. Mustache scuttled over to his right and scooped up his hook again, and instead of going after Gonzo, he came after us. Specifically, he came after the fox bomb. His hand whipped out and flicked once, twice, like a man fly fishing, and the hook sailed over my head and into the machinery of the bomb. It sliced through a hose and hit the gubbins and gaskets. It stuck. Mustache pulled, and it came free. Something went plink. It wasn't the hook. It was the bomb. As Mustache reeled in his weapon, something sprang after it. A length of tubing and some bits of metal, plink. Through the terrible howl of fire, only thirty feet away, through the suits, through testosterone and fear and my own breathing, I heard that damn thing break, and I moved. I moved, and Gonzo moved with me. Perfect mirrors. I lunged for the loose, flapping conduit. The magnetized metallic gooseneck, which was connected to the stuff tank on the bomb, I lunged and I got it. And Gonzo, more human, less sensible, shunted Jim Hepzibah out of the way, so that both of us were dead center of the target when the thing happened. And all the best laid plans went thoroughly aglay, and the situation was, as Ronnie Chung would have said, bollocked from here to Buddha's colon. Above us, the valve on the stuff tank shattered. The stuff inside raced down the magnetic tube and flooded out. We stood together under the waterfall, and who knew what was happening? The stuff was interacting with us, bonding with us, doing whatever it did, and I'd have horns and a tail, and Leah would never kiss me again. But there was no time—five minutes exactly. And so we had five more to rig the backup and not let everyone down, and that's what I shouted into my radio as I spun out of the stream and raced for our truck. Mustache stared. Maybe evil mustache men didn't have friends who'd do that for them, or maybe he hadn't imagined that anyone who wasn't an evil mustache man would accept falling through a stream of stuff and carry on with their mission. Whatever, Mustache was distracted. Almost absent-mindedly, Gonzo bowled the steel bar through the air, and Mustache clocked it about a half beat too late. It sank a few inches into his temple, and he fell straight over onto his back. He didn't even shudder; he was just gone. Don't care, not important. I reached the doors of our truck and hauled them open. Then glanced over my shoulder. Gonzo was staring at me through his visor, and he seemed to be all right. Maybe the suits had kept us safe. Maybe the presence of so much leaky fox had made it all okay, neutralized it. Maybe all that time on Piper Ninety had made us immune. And maybe there was a special retirement farm for old dogs where all the rabbits were too fat to run away. And an eccentric millionaire hired professional masseurs to stroke them every evening in front of a log fire. Jim Hepzibah wasn't moving, and neither was Sally Culpepper. They were all petrified. Oh, bloody hell! Maybe they were petrified. 
I screamed at them, a rageful yawp full of command and desperation. Four minutes and twenty seconds, and then we're fucked. I don't care if I've got fucking horns and a tail. Do this and you can cut them off me. But stop standing there like a fucking bikini parade and move the bloody bomb. I had become Ronnie, but Gonzo at least was hit between the eyes by it, moved alongside me in a heartbeat, and he almost lifted the damn bomb without the hoist. Then Jim and Sally were there, and we had three minutes, and that's impossible, but we were doing it. We were over target, but under deadline. We knew that because we were alive, and staying that way. Yes. We didn't have time to stop and pick up the wounded, but, thank God, Mustache wasn't the kind of guy who left any. Gonzo's suit had dissolved along one arm, and his skin must be burning, but he didn't slow. We fled. New bomb, Sally was saying. New bomb in place. Evacuate now. Repeat now. Confirm by solid tone only. Because each handset can send a single note for Morse or to test a channel. And seconds later, it came back, a series of tones blending into a chord, and we knew they could hear us, and they were alive. We set the timer for ninety seconds and jumped back in our trucks. At ninety seconds, we were passing through the searing heat outside, and the tires were actually skidding in the melted surface of the road. Eighty seconds, and we skidded over the gate and dragged a piece with us for a moment, and we could see the other trucks and the rest of Bones' boys way out ahead of us. The radio channel lit up with questions and demands. What the fuck? What enemy? Jesus, put your foot down! And Jim Hepzibah, like a minister, shut up and tell me it's done. And it is. All charges set. One minute to detonation. And Gonzo nearly turned the truck over, getting us around the curve of the hill. We tucked in under the brow, twenty trucks and as many tanks and armored vehicles, paint scorched and wheels melted, and we hid and hunkered down and waited. Three seconds, Sally Culpepper said, and I was sure she was wrong. Then the sky went white above us, and I squeezed my eyes shut. And even so, I could see the shadow of the hill against the white of the fields beyond, and the image of a steering wheel. The trucks shook and shuddered, and one of the tanks on the very outside of our huddle flipped over. When we looked around the hill, Station Nine was gone, and in its place was a black, smoking ruin, and no fire. Good feeling. Chapter Ten. Homecoming. Some slight confusions regarding fidelity. A new experience. It is the day after, and the world is new. Everything is clear and crisp, and the colors are very bright. I am alive, and so is everyone I love. This simple fact amazes me and makes me giggle. So that Gonzo, who is not a giggling sort of a person, pointedly ignores me as we drive along. I feel brand new, washed and somehow reconnected. My memories and my present are all shook up 
and have fallen somehow the right way around. I am me. It's terribly exciting, and I giggle again. Gonzo has sustained a minor, heroic injury. I have none. Despite all the funny looks and the obvious concern, I am unscathed. I have not grown demon wings or turned green or become a monster. In fact, I suspect this very immunity is what is making everyone so nervous. I am the guy who took a gazillion volts through the palms of his hands, and they earthed in the soil at his feet without as much as making his hair stand on end. I am the woman who fell from a plane and walked away unscathed. It happens. Not often, not reliably, and not when you want it to, but miracle escapes do take place, and I have had one. So in truth has Gonzo, although his arm is angry and bruised and burned, and his ribs are taped up, and he looks like a thundercloud. Gonzo is always angry after being afraid, possibly to distract you. So, a day of rest, by tacit agreement. Gonzo is taking me home. Heaven's gates are getting on a bit, and the wood has peeled around the top. I painted them years ago in response to Leah's need for a white fence, but neither of us liked the effect, so we chipped and scraped the paint off and let the moss grow. Now wind and sun and water have contributed to the mossy assault, and the remaining glossy white has rolled up and flaked. Shove the gates roughly, and a little snowfall of dry paint tumbles to the ground. Gonzo batters them open with an accustomed hand, and they bounce to a halt in the rut left by previous shuntings, winging and wanging as the ripples of the impact exert torsion on their fabric and test their remaining strength. Sometime soon they will break, and I will have to get new gates. Perhaps I should buy new gates now. And leave them in the open for a while before I put them up, so that we never actually have new wood at this entrance. Climbing back into the driving seat, Gonzo dances the cab through the narrow gate. It's actually delicate what he does to sneak the thing between those posts without scraping the cab or knocking down my uprights. He sort of shimmies it through. He takes the long drive slowly, concentrating. And I know every bump. There's the twin dips first. Rainwater puddles made worse by taking a car over them while they were wet. Then there's the channel, an iron watercourse set into the road and preceded by a drift of gravel. It makes a hump, and on the other side there's a dip where water flowing along the upper lip has washed away the soil. The whole thing produces a combined height differential of several inches. Gonzo takes the cab over it one wheel at a time, and we rock gently. After that, the puddles, the dip, where a dirt track from the old construction days crosses the drive, the footsteps, which I will tell my children when we have some, are the footsteps of giants because they have grown in magnitude since I carried Leah through a rainstorm and lost my left boot to the suction, and the lintel. Where a single slab of stone marks the entrance to our forecourt, Gonzo takes them all gently, preserving my history as well as ever I could.
Any moment now, she will open the door. She will not fling it wide because boldness is sometimes rewarded with a travelling salesman or someone late and lost upon the road.